Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains naughty language. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of November 30th, 2020. On this week's show, we'll talk about the NFL in COVID times, the Broncos playing without a quarterback, the 49ers playing without a home stadium, and the Ravens likely pressing on in the midst of a team-wide outbreak. We'll also discuss the life and death of soccer legend Diego Maradona and whether there will ever be another player or person like him. And we'll assess the football debut of kicker Sarah Fuller, who became the first woman to play in a Power Five game. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen, the host of Slow Burn Season 4. Also in D.C., Stefan Fatsis, the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. I've got some soothing rain sounds going on in my background, Stefan, in case people are, are picking that up. How's the, what's the weather report from your part of town? Yeah, rain beating down gently on the skylights. <laughs> a gentle beating. My poetic weather report. And with us from Palo Alto, Slate staff writer, Joel Anderson. He's the host of Slow Burn Season 3 and upcoming Season 6 on the LA riots. Do you care to bore us with some California weather, Joel? Well, I mean, it's gorgeous outside. Sunny, crisp, probably in the 40s this morning. I've got on a sweatshirt, sweatshirt weather. So, yeah, this is what... We pay all that rent for, for for it to look like this uh, the day before December. Good to see you're not under a blanket, though, Joel. I'm glad (laughs) to report that we do not, in case people who are fans of Joel's Twitter feed may think that we record every show under blankets, the way that that, uh, public radio people often do. We do not. Our generous producer, Melissa, has allowed me to do this sans blanket today. So thank you, Melissa, for letting me be free. little radio (laughs) trick. Record under a blanket, better sound. A day before the Denver Broncos were scheduled to host the New Orleans Saints, they reportedly reached out to the league office to ask a question. Could assistant coach Rob Calabrese be their starting quarterback on Sunday? NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell turned down the Broncos' request. But that shows you how desperate the Broncos were to address the unprecedented predicament. With the Broncos down all four of their quarterbacks because of COVID-19 concerns, the Broncos were forced to start Kendall Hinton, a converted wide receiver from Wake Forest who hadn't played quarterback since 2017. Things went about as well as expected. Josh's Saints won 31-3, and Kendall Hinton went 1-9 of for 13 yards with a sack, two interceptions, and a passer rating of zero. It was the latest embarrassing inflection point in the NFL's push to play through the pandemic. Up next, the Steelers-Ravens game, which was originally scheduled for Thanksgiving, but was pushed to Tuesday because of an outbreak on the Ravens that includes quarterback and reigning NFL MVP Lamar Jackson. The league must also figure out what to do with the San Francisco 49ers, who are looking for a new home after Santa Clara County, my home county, by the way, released new restrictions on Saturday that banned all contact sports. It was an ominous sign as the league moves into the final month of the regular season, with coronavirus cases up around the country and little time left for scheduling flexibility. So, Josh, your Saints prevailed over the outman Broncos on Sunday, even though you guys barely played with the quarterback yourselves. But did the win feel like at least a little uncomfortable because of the circumstances? Just kind of layering in different things that you're trying to provoke me into responding to. So I, don't know, I don't know where to begin. The joke's on you, though, because everyone this year feels uncomfortable because of the circumstances, mm-hmm. as does every loss. So I'm not going to even take the bait on this one. <laughs> you know, safety Kareem Jackson of the Broncos said that he felt like the NFL was making an example of his team by making them play the game without a quarterback. And I think that there's some truth to that. It's sort of like, you know, when your parents catch you smoking a cigarette and make you um, smoke the whole carton or pack. I guess it depends on how hard-ass your your parent is, if it's a carton or a pack. But, you know, the NFL was willing to embarrass the Broncos and potentially embarrass 
itself by putting on a game in which one of the teams was not able to compete. I mean, you had a running back and, you know, Joel, as, as you know, running backs can get hurt in any circumstance in, in a game or practice. It's part of the job description. But one of their running backs got hurt. Um, and you have to think that maybe the fact that they're running wildcat and the Saints knew every play <laughs> would not be something that would help protect the health and safety of, of those players. But, you know, what Goodell said at the beginning of the year was they're not going to move or push any games for competitive reasons, only for health and safety reasons. And, you know, the the Broncos coach, Vic Fangio, says after the game that he was really disappointed, not in the league, but in his quarterbacks for meeting, for meeting up, being maskless. Apparently, the quarterbacks lied about the fact that they had done this, and a team employee like sent the NFL surveillance video, which showed that they had been actually meeting and had been close contacts with Jeff Driscoll, the quarterback who did test positive for COVID. So Stefan, um, you know, I, I think that there's a bunch of like smaller questions about what the NFL could or should have done, whether they're being made an example of, whether the NFL should have postponed the game. But I think the bigger question here is one that we've all been kind of thinking about um, you know, in in all aspects of life, which is how much of blame can we put on individuals versus institutions? Um, because, you know, the NFL is the one that's forcing its teams and its players into a situation where they're not in a bubble and mistakes are going to be made or people are going to be people. And then I think it makes the NFL, you know, look better, feel better about itself to be like, oh, it's the player's fault. It's not our fault. It's, it's you know, Drew Locke's fault and Blake Bortles' fault. Yeah. I mean, the fact of what's happened nationally with millions of cases, more than 266,000 deaths, is that despite that, human nature dictates that we're going to get less vigilant over time. People's guards are going to drop. Athletes are going to think themselves impervious because, hey, we're already abiding by all of these rules Nothing's going to happen to us. We're doing better than 95% of the population. And the players are a convenient scapegoat, yes. Our friend Nate Jackson pointed out to me over the weekend that he wonders whether the Broncos would be in this situation if Pat Boland was still the owner of the team, that they've got a muddled ownership situation right now that the league isn't particularly happy about either. And that might have made it easier to make an example of the Broncos and make an example of these players. The Broncos also aren't good and aren't going anywhere. So it's not like losing this game is going to change, you know, their status in in the playoff race or something. Well, but, but it, it certainly benefited the Saints competitively and right. their chances of getting home field advantage in the playoffs if there are playoffs. Right. Yeah. The Saints' division rivals probably would have a lot more to say about the yeah. competitive advantage here, right? Because they're the ones that, you know, they they took an L because the Saints basically got a week off. Right. And I could totally understand them being furious about that. Yeah, and the other factor here, Joel, is that it's not just that the competition was delegitimized here. The game was a joke. At some point, it is dangerous to put lesser athletes on the field competing against the fastest, strongest, most ferocious linemen and linebackers in that play football. Kendall Hinton, the quarterback who stepped in, wasn't going to get killed out there, but he didn't belong out there playing quarterback. How many players are the Baltimore Ravens going to play with if they play on Tuesday night? They had like 20 guys. Mm-hmm. who were sidelined by positive COVID tests or exposures. This doesn't trend in the right direction, and it just makes the NFL look bad. It does affect the competition, and at some point, it does put athletes at some risk. Kendall Hinton wasn't upset about getting to play. Read his quotes. There was a good story in The Athletic, a TikTok about how he found out and what they did to prepare, but he couldn't do anything to prepare. He couldn't take any snaps. He was reading plays off of paper and watching video. That's insane to try to do that and compete in the NFL on no notice after you haven't played it down as a quarterback in like two or three years. I mean, the NFL has already decided that there's an acceptable amount of risk that they're willing to put their players through by playing in the first place, right? 
I mean, again, people haven't talked a lot about it, but the Jaguars have a running back, Raquel Armstead, who's been hospitalized twice after, you know, um, testing positive for coronavirus. So they've already said to themselves, well, we're willing to risk our players. And, the, and, and you know, for what it's worth, the players agreed to it. I mean, they, they're the ones that reached an agreement with the league to play under these circumstances. So I guess, like, I'm torn. Like, I've been torn all weekend about whether or not the Broncos should have been made to play that game or not. And I, I still haven't really figured out where I fall on it because the Broncos signed up for this. They said that this is what they wanted to do. Roger Goodell had warned them earlier in the year, as Josh pointed out, that you know there would be competitive disadvantages and the games would go on in spite of it. And the Broncos, knowing all of that, um, and their quarterback room, knowing all of that, were not particularly diligent. And, I, you know, I know that that's a human nature thing. You know, it kind of reminds me of, like, my parents. They just think that if you wear a mask and you go someplace, like, that protects you for all time. That That's just like, oh, you know, everything's fine. I got a mask on. But, like, people are not still taking the same sort of precautions that they were earlier. But the other piece of it, like you said, Stefan, is that football is so goddamn dangerous, man. The Philip Lindsay is the running back that went out in the second half with the knee injury for the Broncos. And, yeah, I mean, just imagine being a Bronco that day, like everybody was compromised because that sort of competitive disadvantage puts a strain and burden on everybody else. You got an offensive line that has to perform against a defense knowing that there's a lid on the offense. Like they're basically going to be run blocking all day long. So the defense is prepared for that. The running backs are running into eight and nine man boxes. The receivers are turned into essentially glorified tight ends. Then you've got the defense that has to be on the field all goddamn game long because their offense can't keep the ball. They can't sustain any momentum. They can't, you know, put a drive together. So the defense is out there all game long. So it just, I don't know, man. I, the thing is, is that it's all, you're, you're picking from bad decisions all the way around, right? Like there's not, there wasn't a good decision to make. I guess canceling would have been the right decision in the whole scheme of things, but that, that's not what the NFL and the NFLPA have signed up for this year. So you can kind of understand how it happened, right? Well, when you started off, Joel, and saying, you know, the NFL has, you know, made peace with the fact that they're they're willing to put players in a lot of danger. I thought you were talking about just the regular NFL, yeah, irrespective right. <laughs> of COVID. But I think I think there's something to that that like there's kind of like a you know buy the ticket, take the ride aspect for all of this. It's like whether you're a player or a fan or a team, like the whole concept of professional American tackle football is that you're willing to buy into injury risk, both long-term and short-term. And so the way that they've handled COVID is unsurprising given that larger context. I mean, like, what would you expect that the NFL would be like, man, we really care deeply about, you know, the idea that a player could possibly get sick or injured. Like we couldn't <laughs> possibly, you know, stage right. these games now. Like that was never going to happen. But you know, I think you could make an argument in isolation that what the NFL did here was with the Broncos was justified and in keeping with the logic that they had laid out at the beginning of the year. But then I look at the Ravens outbreak and there's mm -hmm. a story about, you know, I think I read this on, you know, a story in ESPN.com that says the Ravens outbreak, which as of Sunday had resulted in confirmed positive tests for at least 20 players and staff, included a strength and conditioning coach who didn't promptly report symptoms or consistently wear a mask. The team has since disciplined him. Needless to say, protocols designed to minimize spread won't work if they're not followed. I mean, that to me suggests denialism. Like, okay, you're going to, obviously every outbreak is going to stem from, you know, somebody getting the virus. And maybe you can look at that person and say they weren't wearing a mask 100% of the time. Or, you know, maybe they should have known what their, you know, what their symptoms were. But like, that's just what's going on everywhere in America. And to act like, oh, it's unusual. And like, how could we possibly anticipated that the Raven strength and conditioning coach wouldn't consistently wear a mask? Like, that's the whole reason that there's, you know, was an NBA bubble. That's the whole reason why, you know, if you have people go to work or you have restaurants open, mm -hmm. that the virus is going to spread. And for us to just like sit here and accept 
this idea coming from the league office that like, well, it's not our fault that like, you know, obviously it's your fault. Right. I mean, where does it stop? You know, it's not the Ravens. It's not our fault. It's the Ravens' fault. It's the Raiders' fault. It's the Titans' fault. It's the Broncos' fault. We're already at what? That's an eighth of the league who are to blame that isn't the NFL's front, the NFL headquarters. We should also note the Saints got fined $500,000 and stripped of a seventh round pick for celebrating after a game. Without masks and there are mockers. There we go. Five out of 32. And there's more that I'm sure I have neglected to remember here. Clearly, I mean, I think it's clear at this point because if you're the, if you're Roger Goodell in the NFL, you're looking at projecting that this could happen during the playoffs or during the Super Bowl. Um, And the only way that this works for the rest of the year, I think, is that why don't they just take a pause? Take two weeks shut everything down, bubble up the way the NBA did, and resume competition under the strictest guidelines possible. Because not just coronavirus problems, but the kinds of physical risk and competitive disadvantages that we saw on Sunday are going to just keep happening, I think. Wait, Stefan, you mean bubble all the teams in one place? No, bubble the teams individually and find tight ways of traveling by charter and controlling this to the maximum ability possible. I mean, I guess that's really ambitious. And I mean, that's something, for instance, the 49ers are going to have to <laughs> consider, right. right? Because they're getting kicked out of here, you know, out of the South Bay, and they don't have anywhere to go. Are you proud of your home county for, uh, yeah. for making these rules? Absolutely. Because I don't have a lot of sympathy for them because none of these teams, none of these professional teams, none of these college programs have shown that they felt any obligation to the communities around them, right? That Like, they feel that, like, by pl- playing is their public service. When, in fact, a lot of places, especially a lot of these colleges, if we've talked about here previously, they've been responsible for some of the breakouts in their communities. So Santa Clara County isn't, you know, obligated to help the 49ers put on a football game. You know, that that's up to them. And so if they have to go to Arizona or wherever the hell to to pull this off, then that's on them. I'm glad that they do it. I'm glad that there are some jurisdictions in this country that are pointing out how absurd this all is, right? Well, it's it's a rare example of exceptions not being made for sports by government. And it shows that there is at least a possibility that there is, you know, can you imagine a higher authority than the NFL commissioner's office that can step in and boss the league around and say, no, you can't have a game here. You can't do things the, the way you've been doing it. It is at least theoretically possible. Like it doesn't have to be this way. It is theoretically right. possible also, Josh, that there's a gigantic outbreak in Tampa in January mm-hmm. and there is a shutdown that prevents the Super Bowl from being held there. I mean, Ron DeSantis, the governor, is not going to be uh, responsible for that shutdown. No. It's probably, probably good for Roger Goodell. Could. I mean, there, there's a point where local authorities will do what Santa Clara does when they are pushed to the brink. But wait, are we doing this? Are you? Are we proposing this shutdown and rebubbling or bubbling uh, in the first place because of the competitive disadvantage piece of it? Because, I, you know, I've... I mean, there's been times that I've seen teams play in championships with players hurt, players out. I mean, we just watched it with the Miami Heat. They lost their best player Mm -hmm. in the finals, and they didn't have to play. I remember one of the worst championship games I ever watched was when Florida State played Oklahoma, and they were down to their third-string quarterback, Marcus Altson. You know what I mean? So, like, sometimes it just happens like that. Sometimes it's fun to watch, but I don't necessarily want to watch that knowing that the reason is that some people were exposed with coronavirus who may have been exposing other people to the coronavirus who may have been exposing other people to the coronavirus. And that seems to me that it should be a priority of the leagues. Well, it's not going to happen. I mean, uh, sorry to, to burst your, uh, your bubble, ha, 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 <laughs> Stefan. But I think what the NFL is thinking here is, well, A, they just want to play every game to get to maximize the, the TV revenue. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure they're thinking if we stop, we're not going to start. They're not going to let us start again. Like mm-hmm. you got to keep the forward momentum going. Like when you run a marathon, you can get across the finish line, but then when you stop, you realize, man, my like body is like totally jacked. Like I couldn't. Like you can't. You can't move the next day or the the day after that. Like if they are able to keep going, they can keep up 
this idea that like, well, it's just like kind of moving along with its own momentum. I guess it, I guess this is happening. But then if you pause for a couple of weeks, then you give people time to stop and think like, wait a second, they paused. Maybe the pause should continue. Right. And, you know, Goodell's not going to going to go for that. I don't know. College football's paused individually and collectively. I mean, they seem to be continuing. I'm sure the NFL would find a way and Fox and NBC and ESPN and CBS would force them to continue. I mean, there was a Thursday night football game between the Packers and 49ers a few weeks ago that was played the day after players were placed on the COVID-19 list. Right. I mean, the thing is, is that we also keep thinking about this in terms of, you know, competition, competitive advantage, so on and so forth, and not necessarily that these guys are human. I mean, one of the guys that tested positive, James Conner, had Hodgkin's lymphoma a few years ago. You know, the, he's a Pittsburgh running back. Mark Andrews, tight end for the Ravens. He has diabetes. He tested positive. Like, it's a reminder, there are people on these teams and around these teams that have pre-existing conditions and comorbidities, and we're taking for granted that these folks are going to recover in the way that we expect them to. We don't know for certain that it's all going to be, oh, guys just missed and they'll be able to come back and get back to work. The NFL has gotten really lucky. The college football has gotten really lucky with that so far. But if they keep pushing it, especially as numbers go up, especially as hospital capacity, you know, is filled at this point. I, d- I don't want to predict anything horrible, but like we, <laughs> at a certain point, we need to look around and be like, you know, it's not just that the Broncos didn't have a quarterback, like people tested positive and like things happen. We can't predict this virus all the time and we need to be cognizant of that. Yeah, it's a good reminder. And I, I just want to have one final quick thought is we've, I feel like built up some credibility in this uh, segment talking about the kind of bigger picture issues and the the dangers here. But I just wanted to just very briefly talk about how we have we have settled the kind of dumb bar argument about how many passes do you think I could complete <laughs> in an NFL game? I mean, well, we're going to talk about this in our bonus segment, but the classic version of that was like, how long do you think? you could last in the ring with Mike Tyson. That That's an, another variation. But in this one, like, Kendall Hinton, is, he's like a good person to, like, try out in this role, given that he was totally unprepared to be in this <laughs> game, but, like, had been a college quarterback and was presumably, like, the greatest athlete in, like, the history of his high school. I don't, I mean, I, I'm not 100% sure about that. But, like, this is a guy who is better than 99.999% of people that would be in a bar engaging in this argument. And he's, like, one for nine with two interceptions, and the one was, like, a tight end screen pass. And so, you know, next next time this bar argument comes up, fire up the tape from Broncos Saints. Hey, by the way, we could actually kind of put your boy in there too, Taysom Hill. I mean, he didn't he didn't necessarily distinguish himself or cover himself in glory either, by the way. But all right, let's uh, let's con- let's continue checking in, Joel. We'll, con- we'll, con- we'll continue up <laughs> weekly updates. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. As I'm sure some of you have too, I've been binging Diego Maradona media since the soccer legend died last week at age 60. Obits and remembrances and perspectives, YouTube videos galore, Maradona scoring famous goals and forgotten ones, highlight reels of Maradona doing preposterous things with a ball and two defenders, Maradona just warming up before a game. And I have to say, those might be my favorites, brilliance disguised as mundanity. As everyone knows, Maradona's two most famous goals came in the same game, the World Cup quarterfinal against England in 1986. The first was the hand of God, the second was Maradona racing 70 yards and pantsing Englishman after Englishman along the way. Let's listen to a call of that goal in Spanish. Gol! 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 Gol!
Genius, genius, genius. I want to cry. Holy God, long live football. What planet did you come from? What planet indeed? There's a lot we could discuss about the life and times of Diego Maradona. We did that a year ago in our interview with Asif Kapadia, the director of the documentary Diego Maradona, which you should go back and listen to and watch the film. We'll post a link on the show page. But Josh, I want to zero in on an aspect of Maradona's career that came into clearer focus for me this past week, that as Rory Smith wrote in the New York Times, Maradona was not a bridge between eras. He was the zenith, the climax, the end. Yeah, that's a really expansive idea, and we'll get into that throughout the segment. But um, the thing that comes to mind for me, especially when thinking about that 1986 World Cup quarterfinal, is that in that game, Maradona personified individual brilliance in a team game. And that Argentina team was Maradona and a bunch of other people. And I think even people who are like enormous fans of, uh, you know, the Argentina, you know, national team and World Cup history would acknowledge that. And this is maybe the one example in the history of the World Cup where you could say that a single player dragged his team to a championship. And that just doesn't happen in soccer. And so if your introduction to the sport was, you know, somebody's like, here's the goal of the century from FIFA. And like, here's the most famous goal, the hand of God, or like the 86 World Cup, check it out. You would have a totally cracked up, incorrect view of what it takes to win in this sport. Like, this just doesn't happen. And, you know, this was the kind of dizzying high of Maradona's career. But, you know, while you would get the wrong idea of soccer in, in general, you wouldn't necessarily get the wrong idea about Diego Maradona by watching that game. This is someone who made the best players in the world look ordinary, both on the field and off the field. And Joel, it's hard to think of another example of a guy who transcended his sport in the way that Maradona did, both as a personality and also just like his relationship to the game itself on the court or, or on the field in the way that he's just so distinct even from his peers in terms of the greatest players in the history of the game. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and I always try to be like upfront about this uh, on here that like I haven't followed soccer for much of my life and definitely wasn't following it in my youth when Maradona would have been at or somewhere near his peak. But, um, you know, as I got older... I became more familiar with like these exploits in retirement than like his talent, right? So he became as much notorious as he was excellent for me in the way that like Mike Tyson, Lawrence Taylor, Dwight Gooden, you know, I don't know if anybody here remembers Roy Tarpley, uh, maybe BML does, but like people like that, they were like, they were like, oh man, they're so talented, but their career was marred by drug use, drug addiction or whatever. So watching Asif's Maradona documentary this weekend was like a revelation to me, man. So what you guys just talked about, about how like a one person could dominate a soccer game. I did not know that it was possible for one person to do that in soccer. Like I was watching the documentary and I was like, wait a minute, like Argentina won. He helped this one team win in soccer. I didn't know one person could have this much impact on a game. And apparently that's not that it doesn't happen. It only happens because of him. And so, yeah, so I, I think, you know, Eric Betts wrote and Slate's bit on Maradona that you could drop him into any game in the world on a dusty patch of empty ground or a neighborhood five-per-side court or a World Cup final, and he would thrive. He was the sports premier individualist. And I'm like, I'm so glad that, I mean, I don't, you know, obviously you don't want anybody to die, but I guess I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I got a chance to, like, catch up and figure out, like, what it was that made him outstanding rather than, you know, relying on the headlines that, that told the story of his decline in the last, you know, 20, 30 years of his life because I had no idea he was like this. The only guy that I've seen in soccer... And like the last five years or 10 years that I was like, oh man, that guy's amazing. Like I could point him out and he's awesome was like Kylian Mbappe. And then like you watched all these old clips of Maradona and you're like, 
oh shit, that guy was everything that everybody said he was. I feel bad that I didn't know about it until, you know, Saturday, essentially. And the question that, you know, Rory Smith brings up in his piece in the Times and that I've been thinking about is just that, could you recreate Maradona today? You know, his biography is the sort of classic born in the in poverty in the barrio ball or orange or bunch of rags or socks, you know, glued to his foot as he walked to school every day, discovered and signed to the local team. But what makes it so, I think, unreplicable is that the way sports has evolved and the way soccer's evolved. You know, Diego Maradona stayed in Argentina until he was in his early 20s. That would never happen today. Maradona played for Barcelona when he went to Europe, but he didn't stay very long because it didn't work out. It's in Barcelona that he gets a taste for Coke in the in the early and mid-1980s. And then he goes to Naples, this nothing club, which never would happen today. And it's just this sort of the the impossibilities in modern professional soccer that would prevent someone from both languishing or developing in a small place as a youth um, and into his you know late teens and early twenties, and then go sort of neglected on a personal level. You know, where are the handlers? Where are the protectors to keep him from away from the drugs and the mafia in 1985 and 1986 and 1987? None of that would happen today. Maradona was so much of the end of the sort of pre-professional era in soccer and in sports that his, you know, his image and his star becomes that much more vibrant because of it. His story becomes that much more um, affecting because of it. Yeah, well, I mean, you guys tell me, because I don't know. I mean, you know, obviously, I'm still coming to this. I was just shocked at how wide open he was. You know what I mean? That, like, you could get access to him at any point. And watching the documentary, the thing that becomes clear so soon, so early, is that he hates being at the center of attention. Like, the crowds, like, people tugging at him. And he looks like he's enduring it. Like, it's a misery the whole damn time. And actually, it's funny that that happened, that I watched it the week after we talked about Freddie Adu. And, like, all the pressure of, like, being a, a celebrity or being, like, you know, a soccer superstar. I just could not believe that people had this kind of access to him, like a superstar. Like, I mean, Michael Jordan was famous in 1988, 1989. It didn't seem like you could get to Michael Jordan like that. And I'm just sort of curious as to how it was how it was that people had access to Diego Maradona like that, you know? Well, he hated it and he loved it. I think he liked what it allowed him to do in terms of, like, nightlife and his notorious appetites. But, you know, what I think was so brilliant and affecting about Diego Maradona, the documentary, is that this footage showed how impossible it was to be him or to be someone with the kind of fame and acclaim he had. And again, like, you know, without living in a gated community, like, you can just compare him to Lionel Messi, as so many people have have done, because um, you know they they come from the the same nation, um, and just the the kind of privacy that Messi's celebrity affords him, like the level of scrutiny that he gets um, comes on the field. He, he's also, you know, I'm sure followed by paparazzi, but he can live, you know, his his money and celebrity and the the mega club that he works for every everything is kind of orchestrated to give him the kind of best conditions to perform in the way that that he can the field is immaculate like all of this stuff and and i think the point that you've been trying to make stefan is like not that long ago you know obviously within our lifetimes the like highest levels of the sport with the best player he had to deal with things that are unimaginable mm-hmm. to us mm-hmm. now and the way and and so it's it's then kind of unsurprising that he had the the fall and the lows that he did but just his ability to still thrive in those circumstances is really remarkable yeah i mean the, and, and the, there's a chicken and egg question too i think josh would diego maradona have become the player that he became if he was you know 
coached intensely from the age of six and sort of pampered and protected for his entire life as a soccer player. Would those improvisational skills and that beauty and creativity and imagination and daring, would all of that been sort of ground into dust if he was a rich kid who played in some club for a very professional style and level of coaching? It's impossible to know, but that's all part of Maradona's story and how we view him as part of this lost age in football where the sport was way more violent, way less disciplined, way less organized professionally, way less controlling than it became just a decade later. And Maradona, as Smith and others, Rory Smith and others pointed out, he really wasn't responsible for the transformation of the style of the game. He was kind of the last breed of of this solo player. Hero ball. But he was responsible for the evolution of the business of the game. Um, There's this great story about how in 1987, Napoli, his team, is drawn to play Real Madrid in the very first round of the European Cup, which was the predecessor to, as we'll see, the Champions League. And Silvio Berlusconi, who owned AC Milan, was like, what are you doing? These are like two of the best teams in Europe. Why are they playing in the first round? And Berlusconi comes up with an idea that eventually, over the next few years, leads to the creation of the Champions League and this corporatified, big club-dominated world of European soccer. Yeah, and I think an interesting question is in talking about the circumstances that Maradona came from, both in terms of the the abject poverty of his family, but also the kind of autodidact nature, like, you know, kicking an orange rather than like being on a manicured field with a coach going around cones. I wonder if it's if it feels fair to say that like on a population level, what those kind of circumstances lead to are a lot of people, you know, a lot of potential players falling through the cracks and staying, you know, in poverty and not ever getting the chance to realize Mm -hmm. their talent. But on an individual level, on the people that do make it, it can confer a kind of singularness or brilliance or, um, you know, the trials that you have to go through make you tougher. But it can also lead, like when you, like with, with Maradona, when you do get to the kind of heights of the profession, then maybe you haven't been given the tools that you need to stay there. I don't know. How do you feel about that, Joel? Well, I don't know. I guess, yeah, it's, I wonder if it's bad for like the top end players, right? That like, you know, that sort of system might mute some of the greatness of the elite player, but it brings up your median player, right? So that like that sort of system makes, you know, Players ten. How many players on a soccer field? Like eleven, right? Yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah. It, it you know it makes players you know six through twenty two or four through twenty two that much better. But like one through three, there might be a cap on how good they'll be and how effective they can be because you've just brought up the median soccer players and made it so much better. So yeah, like I think about that a lot when it comes to like basketball too. That okay, we're coaching guys to be three and D players and to not be creative. You know, there's a lot, the the mid-range game. Like maybe you'll never see anybody like Kobe again or you it may be a while before we see somebody like Kobe, somebody that prefers the difficult mid-range jump shot which we know is like a bad shot, but it has some art to it, it has some beauty to it. And, you know, that's not going to be possible with the way that they're coaching players today. So we may never see, as you guys have been saying, we'll never see somebody like that, which is really disappointing because I thought, you know, man, just watching that dude, I was just struck. But actually I had, this is the other piece of it too that was just shocking to me that like you guys were talking about how like there's just, there was no infrastructure for Maradona. And it it really hit home for me when I found out, you know, so the 1990 World Cup that was played in Italy and Argentina beats Italy in Italy and they were mad at him. And so the Italian League test him, knowing that he was going to test positive for drugs to get him suspended. I, I, I was just like, that's like something that's incomprehensible. I just feel like that's like a thing that has been lost in talking about all this, that they intentionally sabotaged the greatest player in the game, you know? And like, I, like, I just can't imagine that happening anywhere in any sport today. Like maybe I'm naive, but that just seems crazy to me. Well, there's just like so many unique circumstances with him and with that. World Cup and him 
being kind of like a national hero or a hero of, in a in a certain part of Italy and and Napoli and that kind of engendering hatred and and disrespect and jealousy and then he beats the Italian. I mean, it's just a kind of bizarre, unique circumstance that just adds to the legend and you know the the triumph and tragedy mixed in, which is just seems like is always a part of Maradona's story. That mm-hmm. anything that positive happens with him, it's accompanied by a negative. But you know, Stefan, the thing that I'll take away, the things that I read and listened to and watched in the last week, there's a a segment with Gary Lineker, the former England national team player, who's now a commentator played against Maradona in the 86 World Cup, played in the um, you know, top top flight of, of English soccer. And was talking about playing, you know, in an all-star game essentially with Maradona and describing the pregame routine, describing him kicking around socks in the locker room, describing him doing like keepy uppies on the field before the game, and Maradona kicking the ball as high and as hard as he could 13 times in a row. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just having the ball land back on his left foot without every him time. moving like a couple steps. And then Lenneker talks about how he went back to Barcelona where he's playing at the time. And then like players at Barcelona trying to do it. And he said, like, we couldn't do more than three in a row. <laughs> and on the third one, we're just like running all over the field. And so, you know, it's these conversations we're talking about the players who were his peers being in awe of him and talking about how he could do things that they couldn't do. Um, it was just a really great story and a and a, a pretty telling example of what made Maradona brilliant. Yeah, and the Maradona in his retirement, there was a, an interview he gave where he said, basically, like, could you imagine how good I would have been if I hadn't done drugs? So for all of that brilliance, there was more there that we never got to see. Whether it was a longer time of him being playing at that level or doing even more ridiculous things on a soccer field in important games. Um, They didn't win the 1990 World Cup. He got kicked out of the 1994 World Cup after testing positive for ephedrine. So that's part of Maradona's, of the, the contradictions in his life. But there's always, for all of the greatness, we still wonder if he could have even been better. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about the glorious and dignified sport of boxing, where 54-year-old Mike Tyson got back in the ring over the weekend and celebrity dumbass Jake Paul knocked out former NBA dunk champion Nate Robinson. To hear us talk about the not-so-sweet science, you have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. History is on the field in Columbia, Missouri, as Sarah Fuller is about to put her right foot into a football, speaking volumes to women around the world. That was Dave Neal of the SEC Network, narrating the moment before Vanderbilt's Sarah Fuller took the second-half kickoff in Vandy's game against Missouri, becoming the first woman to play in a major conference college football game. Fuller's a soccer goalkeeper— She'd helped lead her team to an SEC championship the previous weekend. She was on the field for the Vanderbilt football team, wearing a Play Like a Girl sticker on her helmet, because every one of the team's regular kickers was prohibited from suiting up because of COVID-19 contact tracing. On that kickoff, Fuller knocked the ball 30 yards down the field, mostly on the ground. It was a designed squib kick. And since Vanderbilt lost 41 to nothing, she did not get a chance to score, no field goal attempts, no extra points. Stefan, what do you make of the whole Sarah Fuller episode experience? How it was covered, talked about? Thrilled for her. Um, there's zero doubt that a soccer player like Sarah Fuller could learn how to kick a football and kick it well, make field goals, make extra points. 
no doubt in my mind. Vanderbilt was put in a situation where they needed to find someone to be a rostered kicker. Had to already, somebody pointed out on Twitter, had to be, this was a former NFL kicker, Shane Graham, um, who now coaches at the University of Florida. He said, had to be someone cleared by the NCAA to play in a game, had to be cleared by protocols, and there's no men's soccer team at Vanderbilt. So the blowback has been that this was a publicity stunt, that it's not really meaningful. But the reality was, it was a reasonable choice by the Vanderbilt football program to reach out to the soccer team and to Sarah Fuller to do this. And it was also terrific public relations. I mean, this was a great thing for them to do. Whether women are going to play football or not is, to me, beside the point. The fact that they did this is a great message to soccer players, to girls who want to kick, who want to play. Um, sure, why not? I think no harm, no foul in terms of uh, them wanting to do it, if even if they're accused of this being a publicity stunt, which I didn't think it was. Vanderbilt seizing on the positive PR fired coach Derek Mason the next day. <laughs> not not content to uh, win the news cycle there, Joel. Well, I mean, you know, I, I thought about that, and I don't think anybody really cares about Derek Mason getting fired. Like, and I don't think it really takes away from Sarah Fuller, right? I mean, because the thing is, is that if you took any pleasure or joy or inspiration from Sarah Fuller's performance on Saturday, it happened amid an absolute ass-kicking from Mizzou. You know what I mean? It wasn't like they lost 41 to nothing to Alabama. So, I mean, you're looking around, you see the program, you see what's happening out there. Um, you know, so yeah, I mean, like Derek Mason getting fired a day later under those circumstances, they got to have the positive press and they're, you know, moving on with their program in the way that you would expect an SEC program to. I didn't watch the game because I don't make a habit of watching Vanderbilt football if I can help it. But I just, again, it's just another one of those things without, you know, being too much of a broken record here. It was predictably an opportunity created by coronavirus, man. Mm -hmm. And so, like, we have to be honest about, I'm happy for Sarah Fuller. I'm happy for anybody that took inspiration from it. But it also is just, again, a massive failure a massive institutional failure that created this opportunity. And, like, she shouldn't have had to be out there because of because of this. But I'm, I'm glad she was. But, I mean, if you want to talk about, like, winning the news cycle or losing the news cycle, I mean, this all happened because Vanderbilt fucked up. Yeah, and I think the other reason to be slightly less sanguine about this moment is, like, um, you know, they had her go out there and kick the ball across the <laughs> ground. And, um, you know, that created this kind of cognitive dissonance where you are, you know, you listen to that big buildup by Dave Neal. She gets out there. It's this great moment. She squibs the ball. And then we hear that this was like this great achievement for womankind. They didn't really let her try to kick the ball deep and maybe they assessed like, you know, she wouldn't have kicked it very far in the air and maybe it would have looked bad for her and they didn't want to embarrass her. I don't know. Maybe she would have kicked it in the end zone. This is all just conjecture and speculation. But Stefan, I think there's a little bit of a risk there in overpraising what she did on the field while, you know, making sure that we talk about how great it was that she got this opportunity, how it is inspirational for women and girls, how women clearly have the ability to kick a football if given adequate time and preparation and training. We can believe all of those things and think all of those things without looking at that kick and say, like, you know, that was, you know, amazing as an individual moment on a football field. Yeah, and I, I, was, I was very circumspect, I thought, in my introductory comments there because the reality was that I did think that the predictable, right, buildup and overreaction um, by conventional media um, was a little bit eye-rolling and counterproductive. My problem as a fake kicker is that— You're, you're America's favorite fake kicker. Thank you. Um, <laughs> is that, yeah, they sent her out there to do something that wouldn't necessarily make her 
look good as a kicker. And there are reasons for that. One, it's hard to kick a football. Just because you play soccer, just because you're a goalkeeper, just because you can punt a ball 60 yards does not mean that you can kick a football off of a tee or off of the ground and do it as well as a as a, as a trained kicker. She had no training. She had a couple of days to go kick some balls with the team. Could she have made an extra point? Absolutely. Could she have kicked the ball into the end zone? Probably not. Kicking off is really hard. Um, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of practice. Remember last year when Carly Lloyd um, banged a few from 55 and everyone was going crazy? Well, Carly Lloyd was taking like a six-step approach on a field goal. That would not happen in a football game. Um, this takes training. It takes reps. It takes practice. And the relevant fact there is not she's a woman. The relevant fact is she's a soccer player who's never, who's never kicked done a football this player, f- never never kicked a football before two days before this game. Right. right. Also, it wasn't like she was a standout soccer player either, which was actually kind of a surprise to me. Like, I did not know that, like, she didn't actually have a much of a collegiate track record before this season in soccer. You know what I mean? Like, she had barely played up until this season. So yeah, we're not I mean, talking she was about certainly, somebody, you know, like every other division one athlete, she was incredibly good on her local high school and local club team. No yeah. doubt. Doesn't but make, she's not going to be on like the U S national team or right. something like that. Right. 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 So the problem then to send her out there and have her kick the ball 25 yards or 30 yards and punch it the way she punched it, which is a very soccer motion is what she utilized. And the coach said afterward, that was designed. We wanted her to feel comfortable to kick the ball the way she was used to kicking it. And you're right, Josh, she probably would have, if she had been allowed to kick off conventionally, it might've been a disaster. It might've gone to the 30 or the 25 or the 20. It wouldn't have looked good necessarily. The more prudent approach, of course, would have been to say, you know, we're 0 and 9. Come back next week when we're playing Georgia, take a week of reps, and we will allow you to to kick an extra point or a field goal if we get into range. So it's, but I think we're looking at this more technically, right? I mean, as a message, just her being on the field was enough. The flip side of that, too, is that it gave sort of MAGA sports Twitter an opportunity to dump on this, as Jason Whitlock did over at whatever it's called, OutKick. He wrote, Sarah Fuller briefly made football socially acceptable for America's most ardent virtue signalers. That was her Oof. primary accomplishment, pleasing Make-A-Wish America. I mean, Jason Whitlock can just go away, but unfortunately, that is a message that you could take from this. She didn't look like she was an actual kicker, and she was sent out there to score a point in the culture war, as he wrote. If you were inclined to come into that thinking that as he was, then you were going to end up at that same place regardless, right? right? So, sure. like, he's not he's not coming at this with any sense of fairness or, like, nope. neutrality, right? Like, he wanted her to fail, and to him, all he had to do was see her not do a regular kickoff or whatever, and, like, he got to be right um, for him, for him and the people that wanted to be that way. And if that's the way they want to be, fine, fuck them. But, you know, that's just... <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, I mean, it's not a surprise coming from that precinct. Um, yeah, man. And I, I just, you know, I, yeah, I would have, I would have liked to have seen her had a chance to kick an extra point, you know, like at least something like that. But I, again, that's just a testament to how bad Vanderbilt is. Like, I mean, they're, I mean, they are so bad that they never gave her, they never put her in a position to where she could even kick you know, a field goal or extra point or do a real kickoff, right? They, and didn't, I, they didn't even get close, man. Right. I don't think they crossed. Like, did they cross did the they not 30? cross the 30? Right. Yeah, man. I had forgotten that Vanderbilt, and I actually was talking with a guy over the weekend, an assistant coach somewhere, that like Vanderbilt, it's either basically between Vanderbilt and Kansas for like the worst power five programs in the country, right? So I guess I had failed to realize how bad they were. And to, and to your point, Stefan, about like well, what they should have done is given her another week. But I mean, what was the alternative and are you surprised that a coaching staff, I don't want to say that they were bad, made not necessarily the best decision related to football strategy? Like, it, of course they would. Well, you know, I think I think the alternative is, you know, like in high school, you see often the best player on the team, the best athlete kickoff. That could be an offensive lineman sometimes. Sometimes it's the quarterback. Mm-hmm. Like, they could have staged a competition and practiced that week and just had every player like line up to kick off and see who could kick the ball the furthest. I mean, obviously they weren't, they weren't anticipating going into the game, you know, only kicking off once because they didn't score the whole game, but 
realistically, they probably could have known you're not going to be kicking off 20 times <laughs> or 10 times or four <laughs> times. And so, you know, they put her in a position to do actually the hardest thing as a kicker. Like LSU has had really good kickers the last couple of years. Um, you know, they had a guy, Cole Tracy, who like barely missed. They have a guy, Cade York, who barely misses now. And neither of them kick off. They have like a dedicated kickoff guy. Who let, me, let me just is, say, since I have a little bit of experience doing this, kicking off is really hard. I was able to, you know, get to the point where I was consistently making 35, 38, even 40 yard field goals. I could not kick off for the life of me. Both leg strength, timing, run up, the whole thing is way more intricate than it looks. And it's a hard thing to do after spending a year practicing it, which I did, let alone for Sarah Fuller to step in and for after two days and be asked to do it. So I understand not wanting to embarrass her even worse and letting her do something that was doable. On the other hand, the doable didn't necessarily look good if you were looking for that, if you cared about more than the fact that she was in uniform, on the field, delivering an incredibly inspiring message, and by the way, being really good about talking about it. She was terrific in her interviews after the game about the entire experience and what it meant to her and what it meant to anybody that might have been watching. So I guess what I would have suggested from a pure competitive standpoint is like have somebody else kick off and have her do the field goals and extra points. Like I think if you're strictly looking for like who would be the best for each role, I bet she would have been better than anybody on the current roster at field goals and extra points. Mm -hmm. And like, I bet if you lined up everyone on that team and just had them try to kick off, I bet she probably wouldn't have been the best at that. But then if you look at it just from a optics and PR perspective, if you're down 21 to nothing at halftime, like Vanderbilt was, and you just send out some like random dude to take the second half kickoff and you've made all this hoopla about Sarah Fuller being on the roster and having the chance, like it's not going to look good if they did for for the team not to Mm -hmm. let her do it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Once they were sort of, you don't want to say they're sort of locked into the newsmaking moment of it, then you kind of got to go through with it and you don't want to like, you know, detract from the own, the own headline that you set up for yourself. Right. So yeah, I just, I wish, you know, I wish she had gotten a chance and maybe she will. I mean, I don't, I mean, the thing is, I mean, if you're losing 41 to nothing to Mizzou, and I don't know who else is on their schedule, I can't imagine that they're going to have too many other opportunities to score this year. Like, they're if that's playing how Georgia, they're playing Georgia next yeah. week, or okay. To. Yeah, I mean, them scoring points against that defense, if they could do it against Mizzou, seems highly unlikely. Stefan, what can you tell us about the history of women kickers? Um, Sarah Fuller, as we've discussed, obviously a unique circumstance of somebody who was pressed into duty, but there are women who've kicked in college before her. And these women are examples of of people who've trained for it and Mm -hmm. did have the opportunity to score in college games. Yeah. uh, Katie Nida kicked two extra points for New Mexico in 2003 in one game. April Goss kicked an extra point for Kent State in 2015. There are other women that that have kicked in lower divisions going back to 1997, actually. So this wasn't groundbreaking in that regard, but to do it in a Power Five conference is what set it apart. And there are women who kick for high school teams all around America. You know, I mean, soccer players have strong legs and there are kicking camps all over the place. And if you like kicking, go learn how to kick a football. And there are obviously like enormous barriers to entry for women in football. The reasons that you would not want to play or be encouraged to play by, you know, coaches or by our broader culture are enormous. And um, the kind of pathway here, I believe, would be one that's like just based purely on individual interest rather Mm -hmm. than being encouraged by a league or I don't know, but like maybe this moment will encourage more women to get out to kick. But it seems like these kind of structural barriers to women getting these opportunities or being encouraged to like learn this specialized skill that I think they, there's no reason that they wouldn't or shouldn't be able to learn, Joel. Um, I, I don't think those structural barriers are going to be lifted um, by, you know, what happened at Vanderbilt. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you want to be good at soccer and that's a particular skill, like it's hard enough to train for that and, you know, train to be a kicker. I mean, people do, go to kicking camps. I mean, Stefan knows this, you know, better than anybody, right? That people go to kicking camps, spend a lot of money, 
kicking clinics and spend all this time. Like, so just to be able to get in line to do this, it just seems like it'll be really hard. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. And now it's time for After Balls. In our last segment, we saluted Power Five kicking pioneer Sarah Fuller. And it got me to thinking about a lesser known female kicking pioneer, are you all familiar with the movie Necessary Roughness, Stefan, Josh? Yes? Dude. Of course. August 26th, 2019, Fatsis Afterball about women kickers after Carly Lloyd took some kicks with the Eagles. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Mentioned it yeah. in there. Okay. Kathy right. Ireland uh, played uh, Lucy Draper. Lucy Draper. Draper. Yep. Mm-hmm. For the tech, for, when, when this movie came out in 1991, uh, Texas State University did not actually exist. The program was based on SMU, which at that point had just gone through the death penalty. Mm-hmm. But it was filmed, and if you're from Texas, you knew it was filmed at what was then known as North Texas State University. And they wore the same colors and all that good stuff. But at any rate, they welcomed on, you know, the great Lucy Draper, who was a female kicker, who was also, you know, Kathy Ireland, who was a Sports Illustrated swimsuit mm-hmm. model and so on. And I don't, do you think people know who Kathy Ireland is at this point? Probably, I, probably not. not. Yeah. She's, well. It's been a while. Maybe our, our younger listeners do not. Yeah, they probably yeah. don't. She was a big deal in the late 80s and early 90s. But at any rate, um, she played the great Lucy Draper in that movie. And so in honor of Kathy Ireland and the, you know, the game breaker, Lucy Draper, we're going to name our afterballs after Lucy Draper today. So, Stefan, who is your Lucy Draper? In one of his excellent columns on Diego Maradona, Rory Smith of the New York Times noted that there have been countless new Maradonas or next Maradonas, the Maradona of this country or the Maradona of that region or city or town. Georgi Haji was the Maradona of the Carpathians. Paul Gascoigne was the Maradona of England. The website Beyond the Last Man counted 53 soccer-playing Maradonas and a few in other walks of life. The Indian Maradona, the Coptic Maradona, the Caribbean Maradona, the Maradona of the Alps, the Bosporus, the Caucasus, the Orient, the Nile, the Desert, the East End. But the list is missing at least one Maradona, the Maradona of Greece. He is Vasilis Hadzipanagis. He was still playing when I lived in Greece in the mid-80s, but I'd never heard of him. I didn't follow the Greek league that closely. But now I wish I had. Hadzipanagis has a crazy story, one that requires a short lesson in modern Greek history. After World War II, Greece had a civil war between the U.S.-backed government army and the East Bloc-backed military arm of the Greek Communist Party. Hadzipanagis's parents were communist sympathizers, and after the government won the war in 1949, they, along with tens of thousands of others, fled Greece as political refugees. They wound up in Tashkent in what is now Uzbekistan. That's where the Greek Maradona was born in 1954. The local clubs competed for him as a kid, and he debuted in the Soviet Premier League at age 17. Hatsipanagis had a low center of gravity, insanely quick reflexes, and that magical ability to make the ball do impossible things. He faked defenders out of their jocks. He spun and pivoted and juked and stuttered and eluded. He was dubbed Nuriev. He was mesmerizing, unstoppable. To play in the Soviet League, Hadzipanagis had to become a Soviet citizen. He quickly made the Soviet national team and played in four qualifiers for the 1976 Olympics, but not the tournament itself, where the USSR won bronze, because he decided to return to Greece. What happened was that in 1974, the military junta that had ruled Greece since the mid-1960s collapsed. Political refugees were allowed to come home. Hatsipanagis was greeted by a huge crowd at the train station in the northern city of Thessaloniki, a safe landing for former refugees, where he joined the club Iraklis. It was a mid-table team, never a match for the big boys, Olympiakos, Panathinaikos, and Ayek down in Athens. But Hatsipanagis was a transformative talent. 
Iraklis won the Greek Cup in his very first season. Big European clubs came after him. Arsenal, Porto, Lazio, Stuttgart, Roma, the Cosmos in New York did too. At the same time that Barcelona was paying three million pounds to acquire Maradona from Argentina, Panathinaikos offered almost two million for Hadzipanagis. But Iraklis refused all offers. Hadzipanagis was too valuable. Andy had signed a contract that he tried to but couldn't escape. He was stuck in Thessaloniki until his last game, a UEFA Cup match in 1990. It was the only European tournament game of his entire career. Hadzipanagis' international career was equally star-crossed. Shortly after arriving in Greece, he joined the national team for a friendly against Poland. But because of those Olympic qualifiers for the Soviets, FIFA wouldn't let him play for Greece again. If not money, or the showcase of the world's best leagues, or the chance to play in a World Cup, Hadzipanagis did at least get recognition. In 1984, he joined Franz Beckenbauer, Mario Kempes, and other world all-stars in an exhibition against the Cosmos at Giants Stadium in front of 40,000 people, a third or so of them Greek-Americans. In 2004, he was named by UEFA as Greece's golden player of the previous half-century. But in the end, the Greek Maradona was a victim of politics, of business, of the rules of the time during which he played. I definitely believe that I have paid for my father's political ideas to the end of his life, Hadzipanagis once said. In my career, everything was a mistake. Many say that others took advantage of my talent without me earning anything, and they are probably right. As if acknowledging the sadness, one seven-minute YouTube compilation of Hadzipanagis's wizardry, he really does compare to Maradona, including his moves, his build, his mop of long curly hair, and his jersey number 10. That compilation is set to Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. And there's something wistful, too, about another tribute, a 1999 song by Lefteris Bilitsas titled Chrissi Epochi, Golden Age. My favorite line in there, Meslalom Fantasias Ke Corner Katefias, Slalom of Dreams, because he weaved with these through defenders and direct corner kicks. He scored directly off of corner kicks all the time. He did it seven times in one season, which is crazy. Vasilis Hadzipanagis, the Greek Maradona. Sad story. A sad story, well told. I also wonder about the goalkeeping in the Greek league that it would allow him to score seven, seven times, times directly from corners yeah. in a single season. Seems not elite, but um, you know that... Not to, not to take anything away from the Greek Maradona. That was great. Soccer has a lot of wholesome songs, don't they? Like, I noticed that in the Maradona documentary as well. Like, they're just very, Maradona, my mother, you know, my mother loves him. You know, that kind of stuff. A lot of and non-wholesome just, songs, too. Just the whole, the whole gamut. Oh, that's a fair <laughs> point. Yeah, the ones in the stands, that's true. Oops. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan to listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show. Also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us out. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. <laughs>